The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. When asked to name the three greatest novels ever written, William Faulkner replied, Anna Karenina, Anna Karenina, Anna Karenina. Nabokov declared that its author, Leo Tolstoy, was the greatest writer of Russian prose fiction. He contrasted him with other great authors by saying, quote, When you are reading Turgenev, you know you are reading Turgenev. When you read Tolstoy, you are reading because you just cannot stop. But who was Leo Tolstoy? How did he become the person who could write War and Peace and Anna Karenina, two of the pinnacles of the novel form, and two of the greatest achievements in the history of human civilization? And why do we not have more than two novels like these by him? What did he decide to do with the rest of his life? And what did he sound like? Actually, I can answer that question thanks to Thomas Edison. After Edison invented the phonograph, he thought we need to preserve the voices of great world figures while there's still time. The man he thought of was Leo Tolstoy. So in 1908, he sent a phonograph to Tolstoy, and Tolstoy, for all his devotion to simplicity, loved new inventions, and he delighted in showing them off to his household. Once, this hobby of his backfired when he eagerly gathered everyone around to demonstrate an electric pencil, which failed to move or do anything else impressive. One wonders what it was supposed to do. Sharpen itself? In any case, Tolstoy got to work for Mr. Edison and made several recordings, including these two. I'll play snippets of them. One is in Russian, the second in English, so you can hear the great man. Count Leo Tolstoy, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. Leo Tolstoy. In the Pantheon, both by popular acclaim and by my personal ranking. One of my favorites. I had a copy of War and Peace when I was in my early teens. I wanted to read it. I tried reading it. I couldn't. 
I just could not get through the first 20 or 30 pages. I was confused. I didn't understand why there was French in this Russian novel. I didn't know who was who. I couldn't follow the names at all. I tried several times and finally stopped trying. One of the very few books that I wanted to read and yet set aside. And then one of the great joys in my life came after college when I was reading madly a book a day and I picked up War and Peace again and found that I could easily follow it. It was immensely pleasurable and rewarding. I had matured into it and aside from a few books like Finnegan's Wake, which I don't think I could tackle without some kind of guidebook, I've never been frustrated by a classic work again. My vocabulary, I guess, and my general reading skills are sharp enough to read whatever they throw at me. So if you're young, or if you're just getting started with literature, or you've felt this frustration, keep going. Keep an open mind. And those white whales, literally, <laughs> literally, Moby Dick, that's a great example of what I'm talking about. Those white whales will be yours, harpooned, hauled to the side of your ship, and mined for treasure. Anna Karenina, too. What a great, great book. There's a story that Tolstoy, later in his life, saw a book sitting on a table at his house. He opened it midway through, started reading, and found that it was pretty good and that he couldn't stop. In fact, he was amazed by it, very pleased. So he turned it over and looked at the cover. Anna Karenina, it said, by Leo Tolstoy. Is that story true? Nabokov thought it was. It should be true. That's how good Anna Karenina is. You can't stop reading. We'll talk about why that is. I have some theories, and we'll have our friend Nabokov's help in figuring it out. It also says something about Tolstoy. He was a relatively young man when he wrote those two great works, and then no more novels. Why not? Why not? What happened to him to cause him to stop writing them? We'll take a look at that phase of his life as well. Before we do that, though, I want to tell you about a new special promotion. We're in a new month now, which means our Patreon lottery has some new prizes. This month, we'll have an Amazon gift certificate for a book of your choice, and we've got a copy of Nabokov's Lectures on Russian Literature, which we're going to give away for free. That's a great book if you haven't read it yet. He tells you all about Chekhov and Tolstoy and Gogol and Gorky and Turgenev and Dostoevsky and, of course... Tolstoy himself. You might want you you might wonder how do I sign up for this bounty, for this golden ticket, this chance to become the lucky winner of a Nabokov book or a nice Amazon gift certificate? Easily enough, you just head on over to patreon.com/literature and sign up to help support the show. My thanks as always to all of my patrons. Let's whet the appetite a little before we get into the break. Tolstoy had an English translator. He's had many, of course, over the years. But one of his first translators was Constance Garnett. Her husband, Edward Garnett, was himself a literary critic, and he had this to say about Tolstoy in 1903. Quote, It is by Tolstoy's passionate seeking of the life of the soul that the great Russian writer towers above the men of our day, and it is because his hunger for spiritual truth has led him to probe contemporary life 
to examine all modern formulas and appearances, to penetrate into the secret thought and emotion of men of all grades in our complex society, that his work is charged with the essence of nearly all that modernity thinks and feels, believes and suffers, hopes and fears, as it evolves in more and more complex forms of our terribly complex civilization. The soul of humanity is, however, always the appeal of men from the life that environs, molds, and burdens them, to instincts that go beyond and transcend their present life. Tolstoy is the appeal of the modern world, the cry of the modern conscience against the blinded fate of its own progress. End quote. The appeal of the modern world, the cry of the modern conscience against the blinded fate of its own progress. What a nice phrase. How well does that hold up a hundred years later? Spoiler alert, it holds up pretty well. <laughs> and it also helps explain Tolstoy to us, especially those later years when he turned from novels to essays and other avenues to promote his ideas of reform. But here's one way we would update Garnett today. He says Tolstoy's hunger for spiritual truth has led him to probe contemporary life, to penetrate into the secret thought and emotion of men of all grades in our complex society. Let's say this instead, the secret thought and emotion of men and women of all grades. He is, as J.M. Coetze said, the master of authority, which I take to mean the greatest practitioner of the omniscient narrative voice. His narrators are so easy, so filled with confidence, so self-assured, so good at their job, but also so wise and convincing that we trust what he tells us. We trust what Tolstoy tells us. And there are some other novelistic tricks he has too, or not tricks so much as talents, or we might as well go ahead and say it, genius. Tolstoy's, in that famous phrase of John Lennon's, if there is such a thing as a genius, Tolstoy was one. We are not to take Anna Karenina as a work of art, said Matthew Arnold, we are to take it as a piece of life. And Isaac Babel said, if the world could write itself, it would write like Tolstoy. Leo Tolstoy, from birth to death and everything in between, after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. 
Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Leo Tolstoy was born in 1828 into a wealthy family. Both his parents died when he was young, his mother when he was two, his father when he was barely nine. His aunt took care of him and his three older brothers after that. Three years later, she died, and they were sent to another part of Russia to live with another aunt. Even though his parents died when he was young, they had an influence on him. His father was a soldier, a career that Tolstoy himself was to follow when he was older. Here's Tolstoy's description of his father. He was a man of the last century, he wrote, and like all his contemporaries, he had in him something chivalrous, enterprising, self-possessed, amiable, a passion for pleasure. His life was so full of all kinds of impulse that he had no time to think about convictions. And besides, he had been so happy all his life that he did not feel it necessary to do so. Tolstoy's mother, on the other hand, served as kind of a beacon. He could barely remember her. Quote, when I try to recall to mind my mother as she was then, only her brown eyes arise before me, always the same look of love and kindness in them. If during the most trying moments of my life I could have caught a glimpse of her smile, I should not have known what grief is. End quote. That's so subtle and so heartbreaking. He can recall her eyes, kind and loving. He can't recall her smile. It makes me want to weep for the young Tolstoy who lost his mother so early and who carried that loss and feeling of absence throughout the rest of his life. Throughout his early life, they lived on family estates. He was educated at home, taught by German and French tutors, and he did not show any particular promise as a student. He was known for being good at games, which is pretty fascinating for a novelist. He went to college and tried to study oriental languages, but this was too demanding, so he switched to law, and in the end he left without completing his degree. What then? He inherited 2,500 acres of farms and woodland. He was full of ideas for self-improvement. One of his aunts had been very religious, and this had influenced him in part. He wanted to be a model farmer and a humane presence on his estate a quote-unquote father to his serfs. What were serfs? The word itself originates from the Latin word for slave, service. Serfs in general were not quite the same as slaves, but it was close. A very quick distinction is that serfs were tied to the land, and slaves were tied to their owner. If the owner moved, the slaves moved too. In serfdom, if you sold the land, the serfs were transferred as well. They came with ownership of the land. Apart from that, serfs sometimes had different legal rights or duties depending on the customs and laws of the particular country. Russian serfs in Tolstoy's early years had very few rights. They were required to work the soil, and they were not paid. 
but it was a controversial institution, one that had been subject to various reforms for decades, and serfdom itself was abolished in Russia in 1861. We don't have time to walk through the history of serfdom here, but I'll point out a couple of things. Tolstoy agonized over serfdom all his life. His obligations to them, the way they were treated, their rights. He developed new methods for their education. He viewed it as part of his role as a Christian. He adopted a kind of Jesus minus the church outlook. He was sincere enough to inspire Gandhi years later. Another thing I want to mention is that serf is often translated as Russian peasant in English. That phrase might be accurate in some instances, but much of the time I think it suggests a broader freedom than was actually the case. Peasants to me suggest a a farmer who is poor but has the freedom to make choices. That wasn't always the case for the Russian serfs, and one wonders if the married woman, the peasant with whom Tolstoy had a three-year affair and a child, Or that woman's husband, another peasant, felt as if they were free to make choices, or if Tolstoy was exercising some of their rights on their behalf. In other ways, Tolstoy proved himself to be a remarkably compassionate owner. He loved working in the fields with the peasants, something he did all his life. He continued to care about their education and welfare, and in many ways he practiced what he preached. He wore simple clothes, a a peasant's blouse. His house was modest. I'm having trouble speaking here. He wore simple clothes, a peasant's blouse. His house was modest. He was a vegetarian. There was an elm tree outside his house with a bench. This was called the tree of the poor. Peasants who had problems would go and sit on the bench, and Tolstoy would come out to sit with them to hear their problems to offer support and advice, and to resolve whatever he could through the use of his resources. And in 1856, he tried to free his serfs. It didn't work, because they thought he was trying to trick them. Once he offered to tear down their houses and pay for new ones, but they wouldn't let him. When he was in his 60s, he announced that he was changing his will to give all his land and wealth to his peasants, but he changed his mind after his wife and ten children complained for months. Eventually, he became kind of a guest in his own house. He lived in the modest way he longed for, letting his wife and children manage the legal and financial responsibilities of the estate. But let's go back to his early years. After leaving university, he joined the military along with a beloved older brother. They traveled to the mountains of the Caucasus, where he joined as a gentleman volunteer. I'm talking now about that region between Russia and Iran and Turkey. It includes Georgia and Azerbaijan and Armenia. It was a lonely outpost, and Tolstoy passed the time hunting, drinking, sleeping, chasing women, and occasionally fighting. He also began writing. He had immediate success as a writer. The editor who received his early submitted writings was ecstatic. And it's not clear exactly why this student, who was good at games but not classes, had such a facility for writing, except for one idea. He had the temperament and the generosity of spirit, the openness and the compassion to understand himself and other people. His early works were autobiographical sketches, mostly. 
or were based on his experiences in the military. He wrote a trilogy, Childhood, Boyhood, and Youth, and a work called The Cossacks. Years later, he wrote another more famous work based on his wartime experiences called Haji Murat, about a separatist guerrilla, but he didn't complete this until he was in his late 60s. So, back to Tolstoy as a young soldier. He requested transfer to an area that had more conflict, and he eventually saw action in the Crimean War in 1854 and 1855. He developed a view of war that continued throughout his life and seeped into his writing. War was full of confusion, but it was also full of heroism. Men in war were at their best and at their worst. And then, this might be the most astonishing part of his development, he was asked to go to St. Petersburg to report on the artillery action he was in. When he arrived, he found that he was famous due to his stories, and he was already treated as a celebrity by the literary world. They had been reading him, they recognized his talent, and he went from being a military gunner to a celebrated author almost overnight. Success didn't sit easy with him, though. He was a conflicted person most of his life. He was big on self-abnegation and longed to live the simple life of a monk, including sexual abstinence, which he often touted and always failed at. He was a celebrity and took some, drew some self-esteem from that, but he was also depressed. He had ideas. He had ideas. He does not seem ever to have been truly comfortable in his own skin, but his restlessness took him on intellectual adventures which served his writing well, except when it didn't. Here's a historian's description of his internal contradictions and his bent for self-improvement. Quote, Inspired in part by the 13 virtues Benjamin Franklin spelled out in his autobiography, Tolstoy created a seemingly endless list of rules by which he aspired to live. While some seem pretty accessible by today's standards, in bed by 10 and up at 5 with no more than a two-hour nap, eat moderately and avoid sweet foods, others offer insight into Tolstoy's lifelong struggle with his personal demons, such as his desire to limit his brothel visits to just two a month, and his self-admonition over his youthful gambling habits. Beginning in his late teens, he would sporadically keep a journal of daily occupations, minutely accounting for how he spent his day and clearly plotting out how he intended to spend the following day. As if that wasn't enough, he also compiled an ever-growing list of his moral failures and even found time to create guides governing everything from listening to music to playing cards while in Moscow. End quote. We're heading toward his great mountainous achievements, the two novels that make him even today a household name. But first, let's take a look at what Tolstoy himself read. He loved reading the Bible, especially the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis. He also read Pushkin, Rousseau, Turgenev, Dickens. He was a great admirer of Dickens. He thought Dickens forced readers to love him because he, he himself showed such love for his characters and creations. David Copperfield was one of Tolstoy's favorites. He read Homer, of course. Homer was so important to Tolstoy, he learned Greek so he could read them in the original. Plato, the Symposium, and the Phaedo, Love and Death, Hugo's Les Miserables, George Eliot, 
Tolstoy had pretty good taste, as you can see. So far, I haven't mentioned a single dud. He was reading great books, books that have lasted. Other than his bizarre hatred for Shakespeare, I think Tolstoy was a pretty good critic. He did read some sensationalist novels, some popular British authors who aren't widely read today, bestsellers. Maybe that was to pick up some tricks, some tools for his toolbox, how to plot stories, how to sketch characters quickly. Even the greats can learn from the popular. Ask the greatest of novelists today who they read and learn from, and they're as likely to say Dashiell Hammett or Elmore Leonard or Lee Child or Laura Lipman or Patricia Highsmith as they are to say James Joyce or Virginia Woolf. I heard that Orson Welles used to return to America, turn on the television, and watch it with the sound off. He wanted to know how fast he could make his cuts. The pace changed. It always sped up. And when he was planning his films or editing them, he wanted to know where the public was, what they could expect, what they could tolerate, what would be cutting edge. Tolstoy also read the New Testament. He had his own edition of the Gospels. And in his later years, he read a lot of Eastern philosophy, chiefly Buddhism and Lao Tzu. I haven't mentioned other philosophers like Pascal, which who Tolstoy admired, and he was, of course, widely read in history. Dostoevsky is probably the most interesting case. Dostoevsky openly admired Tolstoy and wanted to meet him. Tolstoy was indifferent toward Dostoevsky. Eh? Who? That was Tolstoy's attitude. Oh, him. Yeah, yeah. Dostoevsky engaged him openly in his works. Tolstoy did so, but only on the sly. We know that he read Dostoevsky, but he affected nonchalance. But that story has a, an ending to it. Let's save that end of the story until later. There's more to it. And of course... There's the other European wife, unhappy and doomed, Madame Bovary, by Gustave Flaubert. Anna Karenina is a close family member, we might say. Anna is Emma's Russian cousin. Flaubert admired Tolstoy. What an artist, he said after reading War and Peace. What a psychologist. I uttered shrieks of delight when reading this. We'll take a closer look at this artistry and maybe utter a few shrieks of delight of our own after this. War and Peace was published in serial form between 1865 and 1869. It chronicles the history of the French invasion of Russia and how the Napoleonic era influenced Russian society. It tells a story of five aristocratic families, but it's not a novel in a conventional sense. Tolstoy himself didn't consider it a novel exactly. He later said that Anna Karenina was his first novel. But it's fiction, or it's history or cultural history written as fiction, and it benefits from Tolstoy's great powers of observation and narration which we'll talk about in a minute. He became immediately famous for an omniscient style that we now call cinematic because it can give us a wide, establishing shot, a landscape, but then zoom right in on a close-up. The big picture, the long view of history, the sweep, 
and then the perfect minute detail of a party or a gesture or a facial expression. Reviewers were left a bit puzzled by War and Peace, not sure how to categorize it, but they admired it greatly. The battles, the descriptions of society, the passages of military history, the way it all defined an era. Maybe it was hard to categorize the book, but everything in the book felt believable to them and compelling and satisfying. It was called the Russian Iliad. Dostoevsky said, quote, My strong conviction is that a writer of fiction has to have most profound knowledge, not only of the poetic side of his art, but also the reality he deals with in its historical as well as contemporary context. Here in Russia, as far as I see it, only one writer excels in this, Count Leo Tolstoy. End quote. Anna Karenina came next, published between 1873 and 1878. This was a more conventional novel, telling the story of a woman who finds her marriage to a government official impossibly dull. She meets another man and falls in love with him, eventually entering into an affair, only to find herself struggling with the indecision and then hostility of her husband, finds herself subjected to many social and institutional obstacles to ever-achieving happiness in a kind of miscommunication with her new lover and ends up lost in jealousy and headed for a tragic end. There are other stories as well in its thousand pages, including a parallel plot involving a stand-in for Tolstoy named Levin, who falls in love, gets married, attempts to manage his estate, desperately wants to live sincerely and honestly, and to improve himself, and who goes on a kind of spiritual search for meaning. Anna Karenina begins with one of the most famous opening lines in all of literature. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Anna Karenina was extraordinarily successful and well-received, and it continues to be so. Dostoevsky called it flawless as a work of art. 130 years later, in 2007, a survey of authors ranked it as the greatest novel ever written. These books, War and Peace and Anna Karenina, have a greatness of plot, a greatness of character, but so do many authors— They're more than that, though. They're more than just beautiful descriptions of the land and the people and society and ideas. They're authoritative, as we heard earlier, and omniscient. They make grand pronouncements. But other writers do this, too. And as often as not, we chafe at their doing so. It's a weakness in others. It can grow tiresome, or it becomes outdated quickly. It breaks the spell of fiction. We find ourselves disagreeing with our narrator. With Tolstoy, it's not that way. We fall into the spell. We go along for the ride. One of Tolstoy's strengths is that he breaks things into smaller components. What for one author might be a single statement. So-and-so was in love, and he found it hard to stop thinking about her. That's the concept. Most novelists will adorn this, 
And from then on, she was in his mind. When he closed his eyes, he saw her brown eyes gazing up at him as he talked about nonsense, and he remembered the time they were caught in a sudden heavy snowstorm, and the way she brushed the snow from her hair, and how the snowflakes clung to her eyelashes. That's a sample that I made up. It's perfectly acceptable. We see that he's in love. We see what he recalls. Our novelist thinks, I want my readers to know that he's in love with her. I don't want to just say it. I want to show it. So I'll show that he remembers these things about her. And we'll know he's in love because that's what people who are in love do. They remember things. And I'll include some some cute details or some memorable details some quirky details, some beautiful details, and these will show that my hero is a sensitive sort of guy. We'll see not only that he's in love, but that there's a reason for him to be in love. And hopefully my readers will like these people well enough. I'll give you the passage again. He was in love. He found it hard to stop thinking about her. That's the concept we're going for. Here's the sample passage. And from then on, she was in his mind. When he closed his eyes, he saw her brown eyes gazing up at him as he talked about nonsense. And he remembered the time they were caught in a sudden heavy snowstorm and the way she brushed the snow from her hair and how the snowflakes clung to her eyelashes. That's what most novelists do, I think. Here's Tolstoy. The place where Kitty stood seemed to him a holy shrine, unapproachable, and there was one moment when he was almost retreating. So overwhelmed was he with terror. He had to make an effort to master himself and to remind himself that people of all sorts were moving about her and that he too might come there to skate. He walked down, for a long while avoiding looking at her as at the sun, but seeing her as one does the sun without looking. Do you hear the difference? In the first passage, we see what our hero recalls. In the second passage, we see what it's like to be in love. What it's like to feel like you're in love. Tolstoy does this with such frequency and such conviction and such insight and wisdom that it feels like you yourself are being observed. Let me read it again. The place where Kitty stood seemed to him a holy shrine unapproachable, and there was one moment when he was almost retreating, so overwhelmed was he with terror. He had to make an effort to master himself and to remind himself that people of all sorts were moving about her, and that he too might come there to skate. He walked down, for a long while avoiding looking at her as at the sun, but seeing her as one does the sun without looking. Virginia Woolf picked up on this. She said, Tolstoy was the greatest of all novelists, whose powers of observation were so acute, they invoked a kind of fear in readers, who, quote, wish to escape from the gaze Tolstoy fixes upon us. End quote. That is power. The person who sees us like a looking through an x-ray into our soul. It's powerful stuff for a novelist. Here's another example. A man goes to visit his brother, who is sick. Novelists will give us the details, right? Most novelists, most good novelists, they'll tell us the smells, the tone of the skin, the hollow eyes, the machinery in the hospital. 
Tolstoy can do all that too, of course. But then we also get passages like this. Quote, Levin could not look calmly at his brother. He could not himself be natural and calm in his presence. When he went in to the sick man, his eyes and his attention were unconsciously dimmed, and he did not see and did not distinguish the details of his brother's condition. He smelled the awful odor, saw the dirt, disorder, and miserable condition, and heard the groans, and felt that nothing could be done to help. It never entered his head to analyze the details of the sick man's situation. End quote. We see Levin as much as we see the sick room, and Levin's response is so similar to ours. We can't look calmly. We can't be natural and calm. Everyone who's ever been to a hospital knows what that feels like. His eyes and his attention were unconsciously dimmed. You know how this feels, right? How you don't become hyper-aware of your surroundings, but you start to shut down a little bit. You notice less, maybe, because you can't take it. You try to find the familiar. You tell yourself it's not so bad, it must be okay. You can't fathom, absorb the horror of the place, of the situation. We hear Levin could not see and did not distinguish the details of his brother's condition. We've been there. It's selfish, but we know it's human. We know that we've done that too. Tolstoy gives us the scene. He gives us the details of the room. That Levin smelled the awful odor and saw the dirt and disorder and heard the groans. It's not like we're only in Levin's head here. We get the details about the world as he's experiencing it. But Levin feels like nothing can be done to help. And that's a feeling that we know. A feeling that we know from being in similar situations ourselves. It feels like Tolstoy is staring at us as well as what his character sees. Here's Tolstoy, the omniscient narrator. It never entered his head to analyze the details of the sick man's situation. That's the gaze that Wolf is talking about. We know exactly what this is like. It's a hospital or a sick room. It could be the homeless man we pass on the street. And we say, not my problem. Nothing I can do here. I've got somewhere I need to be. We hurry along, our heads down, brushing past, not really seeing what's what's there to be seen. But Tolstoy says, not so fast. I see you. I know that you see the suffering, and you pass right on by. Maybe you couldn't fix those problems. Maybe it would be inconvenient or painful for you. Maybe it would be impossible. But look here. Look at yourself. It doesn't even enter your head to analyze the problem. It does not even enter your head to analyze it. Isn't that fascinating? What does that say about our character? And what does it say about us? A thousand pages of this, not just social problems, but our darkest corners, suddenly lit up by this masterful writer who shines a lamp on everything we thought was hidden. Not just poverty and politics, not just war and peace, but what we think about at our deepest core. Our attitudes toward each other, our jealousies, our triumphs and disappointments, our feelings about love and life and death.
And there's one more gift, one more astonishing strength of Tolstoy's that I want to discuss, something that sets him apart from all other novelists. I'll need Nabokov to help me unpack this one. This is from Nabokov's great lecture series when he was at Cornell University. He says this about Tolstoy, quote, One discovery that he made has, curiously enough, never been noticed by critics. He discovered, and certainly never realized his discovery, he discovered a method of picturing life which most pleasingly and exactly corresponds to our idea of time. He is the only writer I know of whose watch keeps time with the numberless watches of his readers. All the great writers have good eyes, and the realism, as it is called, of Tolstoy's descriptions has been deepened by others. And though the average Russian reader will tell you that what seduces him in Tolstoy is the absolute reality of his novels, the sensation of meeting old friends and seeing familiar places, this is neither here nor there. Others were equally good at vivid description. What really seduces the average reader is the gift Tolstoy had of endowing his fiction with such time values as correspond exactly to our sense of time. It is a mysterious accomplishment which is not so much a laudable feature of genius as something pertaining to the physical nature of that genius. This time balance, absolutely peculiar to Tolstoy alone, is what gives the gentle reader that sense of average reality which he is apt to ascribe to Tolstoy's keen vision. Tolstoy's prose keeps pace with our pulses. His characters seem to move with the same swing as the people passing under our window while we sit reading his book. The queer thing about it is that actually Tolstoy was rather careless when dealing with the objective idea of time. There are other great writers who were quite consciously fascinated by the idea of time and quite consciously tried to render its movement. This Proust does when his hero in the novel In Search of Lost Time arrives at a final party where he sees people he used to know now for some reason wearing gray wigs and then realizes that the gray wigs are organic gray hairs, that they have grown old while he has been strolling through his memories. Or notice how James Joyce regulates the time element in Ulysses by the slow gradual passing of a crumpled bit of paper down the river from bridge to bridge, down the Liffey to Dublin Bay to the Eternal Sea. Yet these writers who actually dealt in time values did not do what Tolstoy quite casually quite unconsciously does. They move either slower or faster than the reader's grandfather clock. It is the time by Proust or the time by Joyce, not the common average time, a kind of standard time which Tolstoy somehow manages to convey. End quote. Nabokov points out that this might be why Russians often talk about Tolstoy's characters as if they existed, people who really exist. They saw them as distinctly as if they had danced with Kitty and Anna or Natasha at the ball or dined with Oblonsky at his favorite restaurant. And for all of this, for all of this greatness, for these great gifts that Tolstoy had, the mysterious gift and his ability to observe everything, and convey it all with a perfect internal clock. 
It perfectly captures time. He stopped. After these two gigantic novels, he stopped writing big novels, and he almost stopped writing fiction. It was as if he didn't realize his own powers. He wanted to change things. He wanted to reform. He felt that obligation of his parents and his aunt, the religious people in his life. He wanted to change the world for the better. He wanted to end hypocrisy, his own hypocrisy, his own weaknesses, and he wanted society to treat people better. And his writings become more polemical. They become essays devoted to social reforms and improvements. There are passages like this in his novel as well, and maybe it's just two sides of the same coin. Maybe it's the bad we have to take with the good. Maybe his weakness was what also gave us his strength. His passion for helping others, his passion for reform, seeps into his novels and give us the passages, yes, that have not held up so well, but maybe the things that have held up so well derive from the same thing, from the same source, from his great powers of empathy. Maybe it's these qualities that helped him understand his characters in the first place or motivated him to pick up the pen altogether. The sadness is that he didn't recognize that his powerful gifts were his best tool, that he could have used fiction to explore the themes that he wanted to explore. He could have moved heaven and earth if he had trusted art more. Nabokov is great on this as well. He says, quote, The ideological poison, the message, to use a term invented by quack reformers, began to affect the Russian novel in the middle of the last century, and it has killed it by the middle of this one. It would seem at first glance that Tolstoy's fiction is heavily infected with his teachings. Actually, his ideology was so tame and so vague and so far from politics, and, on the other hand, his art was so powerful, so tiger-bright, so original and universal, that it easily transcends the sermon. In the long run, what interested him as a thinker were life and death, and after all, no artist can avoid treating these themes. Count Tolstoy was a robust man with a restless soul who all his life was torn between his sensual temperament and his supersensitive conscience. His appetites constantly led him astray from the quiet country road that the ascetic in him craved to follow as passionately as the rake in him craved for the city pleasures of the flesh. In his youth, the rake had a better chance and took it. Later, after his marriage in 1862, Tolstoy found temporary peace in family life divided between the wise management of his fortune, he had rich lands in the Volga region, and the writing of his best prose. It is then, in the 60s and early 70s, that he produced his immense War and Peace and his immortal Anna Karenina. Still later, beginning in the late 70s when he was over 40, his conscience triumphed. The ethical overcame both the aesthetical and the personal and drove him to sacrifice his wife's happiness, his peaceful family life, and his lofty literary career to what he considered a moral necessity, living according to the principles of rational Christian morality, the simple and stern life of generalized humanity instead of the colorful adventure of individual art. And when in 1910 he realized that by continuing to live on his country estate in the bosom of his stormy family, he still was betraying his ideal of a simple, saintly existence. He, a man of 80, 
left his home and wandered away, heading for a monastery he never reached, and died in the waiting room of a little railway station. Nabokov has many fine passages about this, how he Tolstoy's teaching constantly intruded upon his art until he stopped trusting his art altogether. Or maybe he was spent. Maybe the long stretches writing the big books took everything out of him. He said once that he put everything he knew about the world into Anna Karenina. It was everything he knew, everything he had to say. Maybe there was no following it. But as Nabokov points out, Tolstoy couldn't keep the tiger from roaring to life once in a while. Even later in life, he wrote what many consider to be the greatest novella ever written, The Death of Ivan Ilyich, a beautiful work in its own way comparable to War and Peace and Anna Karenina. It has a quiet majesty, a beauty, a sort of perfection to it. It's too bad we don't have a dozen of these, instead of all the pamphlets and nonfiction essays, which are interesting and intelligent and even engaging, but they aren't as universal, they haven't held up as well, and they're not blessed by genius. It's like Lindsay Buckingham's experimental music after when he was pushing Fleetwood Mac beyond the envelope. Yeah, sure. Great to push the envelope. Lindsay, I'm glad you got to work on what you wanted to work on. But guess what? I'll take another Rumors album. I'll take five more of those, please. That's your real gift. That's your genius working at its peak. We haven't talked much about Tolstoy's wife, Sophia. She was much younger than him. He was 34 and she was 18 when they met, and they married a few months later. For all his saintliness, Tolstoy cannot have been too easy to live with, and she deserves some credit for sticking with him. He insisted on having her read his diaries, which included passages about his affairs with the female serfs. He believed that it was important to be open and honest, but it also led to her suspicion of him. She worried that he would leave her or have a serious affair, compromise her position. She herself had 13 children, though several of them did not survive childhood. Let's give her some credit for that too, for the pregnancies and the childbirth, the mothering and caretaking and the agonies and the grief. And... On top of all that, she was his copyist. He wrote his manuscripts in a difficult hand, and he made tiny notes. Sophia painstakingly transcribed the work seven times, front to back, in the case of War and Peace, working with a magnifying glass by candlelight after the children and servants had gone to bed. I say all this because sometimes Sophia gets a bad rap, especially when it comes to the circumstances around Tolstoy's death. Here's how one biographer described it. Quote, Despite the couple's initial attraction and Sophia's invaluable assistance to his work, the Tolstoy marriage was far from serene. Things got off to a rocky start when he forced her to read his diaries, chock full of his premarital sexual exploits, the night before their wedding. As Tolstoy's interest in spiritual matters grew, his interest in his family waned leaving Sophia to shoulder the burden of running their ever-increasing businesses and navigating Tolstoy's ever-fluctuating moods. By the 1880s, with Tolstoy's disciples living on the family estate and the author cobbling his own shoes and wearing peasant clothing, an increasingly angry Sophia demanded he sign over control of his publishing royalties, lest he bankrupt his family. By 1910, the deeply unhappy 82-year-old author had seen enough. 
he fled the family home in the middle of the night with one of his daughters, intending to settle on a small parcel of land owned by his sister. His disappearance caused a media sensation, and when he turned up at a railway station a few days later, so did a news crew with film camera in tow, a huge crowd, and his wife. Already in ill health, Tolstoy refused to return home, and after developing pneumonia, he died at the rural outpost on November 20th, 1910. End quote. Let's not stop there. Let's end on a couple of stories. It's so easy to think of Tolstoy as this grand, white-bearded, august, aristocratic, spiritual force, a kind of larger-than-life, superhuman figure. Picture Karl Marx or Walt Whitman, one of those grand 19th-century people with big beards, big square heads. Ernest Hemingway crossed with Karl Marx. That's kind of my vision of Tolstoy, and it's always shocking to me when I see in what, as it turns out, was the first color photograph ever taken in Russia, which was of Tolstoy. <laughs> Somehow these, these people knew how to commemorate things. A phonograph, we've got one. Let's send it to Tolstoy. Color photographs, let's not just take a picture of a flower. Let's go take one of Leo Tolstoy. When you see that picture, you see a much thinner man. You see someone who looks wise, who looks kind. And in spite of his grand novels, someone who looks a little thin and, and frail. Nabokov recalled something the author Ivan Bunin told him, that when he visited Tolstoy for the first time and sat waiting for him, he was almost shocked to see suddenly emerge from a small door a little old man, instead of the giant he had involuntarily imagined. And then Nabokov adds this arresting gem of a story. I was a child, he wrote, and I faintly remember my father shaking hands with someone on a street corner, then telling me as we continued our walk, that was Tolstoy. Isn't that wonderful? I love that story. That was Tolstoy, not living in a castle surrounded by moats, or even in his relatively modest country estate, just walking on the street, there to shake hands with an old friend, a casual acquaintance, or a fan of his novels or essays. Finally, let's go back to the story of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Remember I told you that Dostoevsky revered Tolstoy and Tolstoy responded in turn with a kind of back-of-the-hand dismissal? That changed when Dostoevsky died. After he heard the news, Tolstoy wrote this to a friend, quote, When Dostoevsky died, I understood that he was such a very kindred, dear, and necessary person to me. I was a man of letters, and men of letters are all vain, jealous. I at least was that kind of man of letters. But never did it enter my head to compare myself to him. Never. All that he did, what he did that was good and real, was such that the more he did, the better it was for me. Art arouses envy in me. Intellect does too, but matters of the heart arouse only joy. I thus considered him my friend and never imagined that we wouldn't meet. And suddenly, over dinner, I read that he is dead. Some kind of support was taken away from under me. I fell apart 
and at that point it became clear how dear he was to me, and I wept, and I weep still. If there's any work of Dostoevsky you might wonder about, it might be the Brothers Karamazov, with its search for a soul, a deep look into the heart of Christianity, a questing, searching book. It came out in 1880. Tolstoy tried to read it and was dissatisfied. He didn't like the story, didn't like the style. But as we just heard, professional jealousy may have had something to do with this. Vanity may have blocked Tolstoy from going on that deep spiritual journey that Dostoevsky invited us to take with him. It's a shame that Tolstoy put the book down in 1880. It's a shame he didn't embrace the agonizing yearning for brotherly love in Dostoevsky's work. But as we heard, something changed for Tolstoy when he heard that Dostoevsky had died. Suddenly, his vanity subsided. He recognized the importance of his fellow countryman and novelist. His heart opened up. And when Tolstoy set out on his final trip to the railway station, he asked for some books to be sent to him. One of these, we know, was the second volume of the Brothers Karamazov. Not the first volume. The second. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Man, Leo Tolstoy. We are going after big game here on this little podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. A reminder that you can help support the show at patreon.com slash literature. This month, we're going to give away a copy of Vladimir Nabokov's book, Lectures in Russian Literature, which I drew from extensively in preparing for this show. It's a great book. And all you have to do is sign up to be one of our Patreons at patreon.com slash literature to be automatically entered. If you've signed up before, don't worry. You're entered. The prize may soon be yours. What else? I'll be leaving soon on a vacation, but don't worry. I'm going to try my best to make sure you do not miss any History of Literature podcast goodness. There may be some slight delays, but it won't be long. And when I come back, we'll get back into the swing of things with more great books, more great authors, more great guests, more great stories, and more of my grading voice. Wait, what? Who wrote that? Shouldn't that be more of my great voice? Gar? My producer Gar says, the interns have spoken. Indeed they have. Well, there you go. Lots of greatness and a little bit of grading. Do the interns want to go work somewhere else, maybe? They could explore their greatness somewhere else. How many of these episodes are going to end with me firing the interns? Too many. And yet, the producer never changes. Hmm, Gar? Maybe it's time we rethink the producer position. Maybe instead of rotating the interns, we should think about rotating some more senior positions. All right, all right, I get it, I get it, I get it. Ah, I'm Jack Wilson, doing my best with the hand I've been dealt, and isn't that for the best? All happy podcasts are alike, but every unhappy podcast is special and interesting. Unhappy in its very own way. That's what makes this so illuminating and so much fun. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>